All right. So uh, we are beginning a new series for this semester for the PM services of campus ministry on the book of Acts. Okay. So I'm pretty excited about that. I love the book of Acts. And just to kind of help set the stage for what's happening in Acts. Okay. So Jesus was crucified on Passover. He rose again three days later. And then for about 40 days, he was hanging out with his disciples and other people. And then after 40 more days, he ascended into heaven. Okay. This kind of takes place in Acts chapter one. Um, And so tonight we're going to start diving into Acts chapter two, which is kind of the birth of the early church. It all started with what we get to talk about tonight which I think is awesome. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. And if you do not, we have some lovely friends who are going to help share Bibles with you. So raise your hand like this if you want to borrow a Bible. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as I, as, I read, as I read this text, here's what I want you guys to do. Whether you're following along or whether you're just listening intently, I want you to use your five senses, okay? And I want you to ask the question, what, what do you hear? What do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? What do you feel? What do you touch? Okay? Use your five senses as I, as I read uh, this text uh, for us tonight. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? Okay, what I want you to do right now is just get into groups of like two or three, maybe four, and just kind of share some of your, some of the senses that you picked up on from these, these verses here. What did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel on your market set? Go. So hang on to those for a few minutes. We'll come back to that in a little bit, Okay. Um, as I was thinking about this story, I thought, what way can I help illustrate and help capture so we can kind of feel the story? So I have some pictures that kind of tell the story here. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I love that. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? I love that question. I, I, first of all, I love these, these pictures. I think they're funny. Um, Thebricktestament.com. You can look up some other ones there later tonight if you'd like. What does this mean? What does this mean for, what did this mean for them 2,000 years ago? And what possibly might this mean for us tonight? I think it's a great question. I think it's hugely important, and I'm excited to kind of share some of that with you. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to kind of piece together a bunch of things that might seem that they don't fit, but I think you'll see at the end that they're kind of building on top of each other. So um, this text here talks about every nation uh, under heaven, okay? So here's a map, and they gather in Jerusalem, which is right there, okay? And then the Acts chapter 2 lists all these countries where people come from. They come from Asia and Phrygia and Cappadocia and Pontus, uh, Mesopotamia, Arabia, Judea, Egypt. I mean, they're coming from all over the world, basically, to Jerusalem. Why? Why are there so many people from all over the world that are gathered in Jerusalem on this day? Is that normal? Is Jerusalem usually that diverse? Or is there a reason? Um, this text also says that it's the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, what is Pentecost? Okay, Pentecost. Pentecost was a festival. It was a national festival. I used to think that this story was amazing, and because God's Spirit came on this day, then we called it Pentecost for some reason. Pentecost literally means the, 50, the 50th day. It's 50 days that takes place after Passover. Okay, so in the Old Testament, they call this, this festival, they call it the Feast of Weeks. Or in Hebrew, they call it Shavuot. Say Shavuot. Okay, so God command in Deuteronomy, God, said, God told his people, go to Jerusalem three times a year. Go to Jerusalem for Passover, go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, and go to Jerusalem for Tabernacles. So every single year, Three times a year, people from all over the world would go to Jerusalem for these particular festivals, okay? And the word Pentecost is, I mean, the Greek word uh, is literally the 50th day, okay? So in, in the New Testament, we're, we refer to the Greek, the Greek word for that. What else? I want to say a couple other things about the Feast of Weeks, okay? The Feast of Weeks was initially an agricultural festival, and it was, a, it was a thanksgiving time, thanking God for the harvest. 
I mean, it was, happened in the spring, and they just had the harvest. And so they would, they would gather all their wheat together, and then they would bake these loaves of bread, and they would bring their first two loaves of bread to God as an offering and saying, thank you, God, for the harvest. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For without the harvest, we would not be able to survive. Okay? Uh, another thing about the Feast of Weeks, which kind of came a little bit later, the Jewish, pe- the Jewish people came to believe that um, God gave the Bible to Moses on Mount Sinai on the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Bible doesn't say explicitly that this happened on this exact day, but the Bible does indicate that it happened in the same month, and there's other things that I could explain later if you're really fascinated that I think the Jewish people actually probably have it right. God came down to Moses on Mount Sinai to give him this book. The two tablets. Where people are celebrating this festival with two loaves of bread. And in this book it says, man shall not live live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome. One of the ways that the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Weeks today is as a way of saying thanks to God for this book, the night before the Feast of Weeks, the night before Shavuot, they pull an all-nighter just to read and study this book. Thanks, God, for this book. Thanks, God, for this book. I mean, I don't know about you. I I pulled a few all-nighters when I was an undergrad. Never because I wanted to, right? It's always because I had to cram for something. But these people pull an all-nighter every single year because they want to read this book. I think that's awesome. Uh, Anyway, I think that's just something to think about when we think about this book and our love for it. Uh, Okay, so the five senses. Let's come come back to that for a minute. What did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? I want to hear some of you shout out a couple things from this text. Fire. Good. What else? Rushing wind. Very good. What else? Confusion. Based on the different languages. We don't really know what's going on. Anything else? I think you guys hit the top three. I think you hit my top three anyway. Um, Fire, a rushing wind, confusion with the different languages, What's, what's going on here, okay? So I think basically there's three primary images. One of wind, one of fire, and one of different tongues or languages, okay? Um, now, here's another thing that's fascinating. When they celebrated the Feast of Weeks, they had these special ceremonies that took place mid-morning. And then... Every single year, they would read specific scripture passages as part of the celebration, okay? So, some of the scripture passages they would read are the ones on the left column. Exodus 19 and 20, it's the story of when God gave uh, Moses the book on Mount Sinai. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 3, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 15, Habakkuk 2, and the entire book of Ruth, based on the, the, the harvest festival. Um, so, I want to read... Thinking about the three images that I just talked about, okay? The fire and the wind and the languages. 
I want to read these passages on the right column to you. And I want you to just listen carefully to what you hear. Okay? Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Hebrew word for thunder is kolot. Say kolot. Which can also mean voices or languages. So there's fire that's happening, and there's kolot. There's voices that are happening in Exodus chapter 19. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Verse 13. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Verse 27. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were a gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from what I had, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it was brightness all around him. Did you hear that? There's fire, and there's fire, and there's fire, and there's these voices, and there's this thunder, and they're reading the stories. They're reading these passages. When? Acts chapter 2. On Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? All these images that we talked about, the, the wind and the, and the fire and the languages, these things are happening on Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 2 at the time when they are reading these passages. Is that a coincidence using these same images? Is it just God just, it just happened to happen or did God have a reason for these things? In the Old Testament, fire over and over and over again, represents God's presence. Over and over and over again. For example, Exodus chapter 3, Moses and the burning bush. Just one of several examples. So in these, in these passages on the right, we have, we have thunder, we have these voices. We have fire, which represents God's presence. I think God is so big and so awesome that he uses these very same images that they are reading about when God shows up at Pentecost. But the question that they ask, I think, is the right question. What does this mean? I mean, I think that's fascinating that there's some connections there, but what, what does this mean? 
Now, this is going to sound kind of like off in left field a little bit, but to try to help explain this, I want to use an, an image of, of houses. Okay, I'm going to talk about houses a little bit. I believe that everything communicates something, right? And so you can kind of learn a thing or two about people based on where they live, potentially, right? Okay, so here is my house. Uh, currently, I live in Holland, and we live, Stacey and I live on the bottom floor here, and then we have other friends that live here and other friends that live in that little room up there. Um, okay, so that's where we live. Everything communicates something. Okay, that's my house. There's a little bit of a difference between my house and, say, John Travolta's house with two airplanes in his driveway, right? Okay, or let's see, or there's J-Lo's house. Or Eddie Murphy's house. Oprah Winfrey. And this is LeBron James' new house in South Beach. It cost about $9 million. It's three stories. It's right on the, uh, right on the water there, and they have two, like, two docks right there for 60-foot yachts. Here's the laundry room. Look at the size of that laundry room. That laundry room is the size of my house. <laughs> anyway, that's LeBron James' house. Everything communicates something, right? I mean, there's my house, and then there's Oprah Winfrey's house. And it's kind of like, okay, so bigger house equals bigger deal of a person, kind of, right? Same was true in the ancient world. There's pagan gods that had these different houses or temples, and they had enormous houses, enormous temples. And the bigger the temple, the bigger the house, the bigger and the better the god was. I, didn't, I could show you pictures of that, but not tonight. I've seen several ruins of several ancient temples. The bigger the temple, the bigger deal the God was. God, our God, also had a place in which he dwelled, right? In the Old Testament, he commands Moses to help build a, a, a tabernacle. And God says, I'm going to dwell there in the midst of the tabernacle, in, in the midst of you guys as my people. And then later, it becomes a temple that is built in Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to live right here in Jerusalem, in this temple. And you're going to come from the ends of the earth to worship me in this temple. And that temple was awesome. And that temple that was built in Jerusalem was awesome. So what's happening here? What's happening here? What's happening in Acts chapter 2? God calls these people from the ends of the earth to Jerusalem. And then his presence, his spirit, he finally decides, it's time for me to get out of this temple. It's time for me to get out of this house, and I want to go dwell in a new house. I want to dwell in a new temple. I want to dwell in a bigger, better mansion. I'm the king and the creator of the universe, and I can have any temple I want in the whole world. And guess what he chooses? Us. God says, I want to dwell among you, and I want to dwell in you as a community. I don't want to live in temples made by hands anymore. I want to dwell among you. 
Isn't that awesome? What kind of house could he have built? What kind of house is he building, maybe is the question. I think it's awesome that God called his people like a magnet, basically, all the way from all over the world to Jerusalem and says, all right, we got a new plan. And everybody from the whole world is coming. They estimate 100,000 or more people were there at that event. And God's spirit comes out and it dwells among the people and God says, I'm going to live in you, I'm going to live among you, and then you guys are going to go back home all over the globe and you're going to tell the whole world how awesome I am by the way you guys live together in community. It is our responsibility and our great opportunity to be God's presence in the world. We are God's dwelling place. God says, I want to live in you, plural, as a community. What does this mean? I mean, this question is asked in this text, but I want to ask you guys, what does this mean? And I don't want to answer the question for you, so I want you guys to get in groups again real quick and just try to answer that question. Based on what I'm saying, based on what it seems the Bible seems to be saying, what does this mean? What are the implications of this text and the way we live our lives? What does this mean? So why don't you get in your small groups a little bit and then just kind of try to answer that question a little bit. What does, what does this mean? Okay, I want to hear from you guys. What does this mean? What are the implications of this? What does it mean that we get to represent God's presence in the whole world? And how, how, does, this, how does this make implications for how we live our lives? Go. Very good. Sort of like when a temple is built, there are several stones, and we're just one stone in this temple, and we have to be looking good together. I mean, if you ever, you ever put a puzzle together, and at the end you realize there's one piece missing, and it doesn't look very good anymore, it ruins the whole puzzle? It's kind of the same idea. Every piece has to be working together to make a good, beautiful picture. The responsibility we have to live lives that are glorifying to God. What else? Everything matters to him. Every second counts. I love that. We're kind of a big deal to God. Yeah, that's, that's good, man. <laughs> so let me ask this question. Think about the last 48 hours of your life. What have we been doing that represents God well? What, what, what have we been doing that proclaims who God is to the world. Every second matters. And what could it look like for the next 48 hours? Or more, hopefully, than 48 hours. I want to tell you a real quick story. When I was a junior in high school, I was making very poor choices with my life. And I was out partying and doing all those kinds of things. And a friend of mine who was not a Christian came up to me one day and said, Ben, I don't understand this whole God thing. You guys say one thing and then you do another. And I want no part of that. If we as Christians are living hypocritical lives, it communicates something. 
We have a responsibility to represent the king and the creator of the universe. Not to make us feel guilty, or maybe we need to feel guilty. But it's, and it's not just about the consequences if we are not doing the things we ought to be doing. But think about the opportunity that we have. I just think it's fantastic. I think God has blessed us with an unbelievable responsibility. And I want to do it well together as a team. That's what I get excited about. God is here today. He is here among us. He is dwelling in us. And he wants to use us to proclaim to the entire world that he is God. What's going to happen next is we have some fellow students among us who, who also believe this, and they believe in this story. And they want to kind of share a short presentation um, of what this story might have looked like. So 